Hi, and thanks for listening to LockPod. My name's Katie Ringsdor. Today I'm joined by Erwin Cooler. He's an American rabbi and author, but he's also a disruptive spiritual innovator. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erwin. It's, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on LockPod. Um, perhaps it would be nice for you to start by introducing yourself and telling me a little bit about you. Okay, first, it's delightful to be here too. Um, okay, I am uh, a seventh-generation rabbi who works on disrupting religion. And what that really means, I run a think tank at the intersection of innovation, religion, and uh, the sciences of human flourishing. It's called CLAL, the Center for Learning and Leadership. And, uh, and it's a very interesting moment to be working on uh, what's happening with religion and where religion can go and to apply innovation theory uh, to uh, a sector that we generally don't think about regarding religion, regarding innovation. Absolutely. And, you know, it's such a fascinating topic. I mean, when I was researching your online stalking, as I like to call it, uh, when I was doing a good deep dive into you, it's there are so many strings to your bow. I mean, I, I was struggling to even think about where to start this interview with you, if I'm honest with you, because it's just, you've got such a fascinating history uh, and career so far. I mean, I, I think you were voted as one of the most influential rabbis uh, a few years ago as well. I mean, you know, it's... It, the things you've done over the years is quite astronomical. I mean, perhaps we should start by talking about, you know, what the key to successful disruption looks like to you, and certainly within the religious space. Well, I think, you know, the key, what, um, Craig Christensen was one of my teachers, uh, blessed memory, and I think that disruption is the same in every single sector. Uh, creating something new that's good enough to get the job done and get the job done for people in a more efficient and way in a simple way in a more accessible way and that insight is true in every sector we generally don't think about it in religion but if the, if there's real jobs to be done in religion which there are so i can get those jobs down to three or four one is historically the jobs of religion were to help build and foster community to help create a sense of meaning and purpose and to cultivate some free to cultivate some moral virtue or character so those are three really pretty important jobs for a society. You don't have community. You have a lot of loneliness. You have a despair of loneliness and growth across the West. I mean, it's very interesting. Great Britain even has a minister of loneliness. Um, so, so we know that community is the problem. Moral imagination, nurturing the moral imagination. Where is that going to get done? We can see the challenge of that in the incredible technological advances in mastering sort of the material world, which are so unbelievable what we're doing and, and what's coming down the pike. But they have to be matched by some sort of mastery of our inner life and our, and, our, and our moral imagination. And then we all want meaning in life, if, even if we can't discover the meaning of life. We want meaning in life and we want purpose in life. And it used to be you went Sunday or Saturday to church or to temple and you had got some, some transcendent meaning and work wasn't so important and the week wasn't so important. But the Sabbath was holy and you realized who you were and you had some meaning and purpose. Well, in the West, that's over for most people and for most educated people, it surely is over and for most psychologically aware people, it's really over and the data is in on that in the West and Europe and the data is in, in, in that increasingly in the United States. Okay, so where are we going to get those jobs done? I like, I'm looking two places. One, faith-rooted leaders who are finished with trying to build congregations and get people to be more Jewish or more Protestant or more Catholic. Because the goal is not to get people to be more like you. The goal is to create spaces where people can be all of who they are. And 
so that's a, a that's that's one area and the other is the different sectors that these jobs are getting done it seems to me you know if you look at the business sector these days uh the business sector is being called upon to do things it never was called upon to do mm-hmm. in creating meaning and purpose and and justice um so that's it, it, it's actually disruption in any field in any sector is exactly the same know what the job is to get done probably the incumbent business is not getting the job done well enough or not getting the job done and accessible or it's too expensive or too complicated or barriers of entry are too high and build new products and services and i know that's a weird word to use in religion but build new products and services that actually get the job done i like that and when you talk about products and services within religion specifically what do you mean i mean is it about creating tools almost to to generate a safe space for people to build community and understanding what do you mean by that Right, so that's a perfect example. So historically, there are products and services of religion fall into a number of buckets. One, there are actual rituals. Those are practices, tools that help people accomplish something. So I don't care if it's a if it's a, a cross that, that on a, in a church or that you wear that connects you to some meaning and purpose in that tradition, or it's a something that you hang on your door in another tradition that. It invites you to think about what it means to welcome in or, or a Sabbath practice. It invites you to think about what is really the, my value independent of whatever work or whatever I accomplish. These are practices. And these practices, every single religion has practices. Every single business has a lot of practices that, that help get some of those jobs done. Usually it's community habit formation. That's character formation. Right then, there's wisdom and the stories. So businesses have stories. But we call it brand stories in business. We don't mm-hmm. call that in religion. But in religion, you have resurrection stories and salvation stories and promised land stories and hero stories. And and we connect to those stories. Those stories have wisdom and they influence our our lives and and they help transmit values intergenerationally. And so so we have all those wisdom stories. And then we have spaces that are also forms of their Spaces are a form of product and service because you enter the spaces and the spaces themselves convey a certain, it's like if you go into an Apple store, that's really different than going into a bodega and it makes you feel different without even talking to anybody yet. Well, that's the same thing. If you go into sacred spaces, those sacred spaces convey a kind of meaning and purpose and transcendence and way beyond the bricks and mortar of the space. So, well, so all of these are the products and services. The rituals, the practices, the norms, the spaces, the times that people gather, and the holidays that people have, that people celebrate, and the wisdom stories that people tell. That's really interesting, and it's something that I haven't really considered before: is disruption within religion. And I really enjoy the way you've just described that. And you know, there are lots of similar similarities uh, within business, just like you said. Um, oh, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about your career, actually, and how you got to this point of influencing disruption. Uh, how did you get to the top of your profession? Can you give me a bit of background into your career? Yeah, so I grew up in. An, I have five younger brothers. I grew up in a clergyman's house. My father was a cantor. That's the person who sings in the in the Jewish synagogue and. And I grew up in a home that was the tradition was practiced in a very loving and beautiful way. And what that means is that we were always asked, able to ask questions about what was the purpose of what we were doing. Um, I wound up becoming a rabbi because that was, if you're a seventh generation rabbi, that's sort of what happens. 
Um, and then I had a lot of good influences sort of in my initial experiences in the rap. And, and most important, I wound up coming to this think tank called CLAW, the Center for Learning and Leadership. It was designed early on. It was founded in 74, so we're going to have our 50th anniversary. And I was, I've been there 35 years and, and have been the president for the last 20 years. It's designed specifically, initially, to think about the Jewish futures. You know, words, how is Judaism as a religion going to fundamentally change because of the uh, globalization, because of the change in technology, because the, the economic changes that the West was going through. And so it was a very forward-thinking play. And then I was very fortunate to be connected to Clay Christensen and, and, and the Innovator's Dilemma. A very close friend of mine gave me that book in 1997, 98. I read it open. This is, this is like 100% what happened I started reading it at like 11 o'clock at night and I couldn't put it down I'll be honest I got to say I understand every single part of the business part of that book but I understood exactly who I was oh my gosh I'm a disruptive spiritual innovator and disruptive innovation needs to be applied to the sector of religion and if it does get applied to the sector of religion we'll actually have a healthier society and more flourishing society and I went to meet Clay uh, at the Harvard business faculty and and interesting, Clay was the highest ranking Mormon in the Northeast sector of the, of the church. And he'd never had a conversation about religion in the, in the faculty room. And we wound up having this incredible conversation. And I remember saying to him, you know, I say this very respectfully, Professor Christensen, but, you know, it seems to me that Mormonism relative to Protestantism is itself a disruptive innovation. And he looked because it doesn't have a, a laity, it doesn't have a clergy, it has a laity. It, it, it meets in house churches a lot. It, was, it, it really lowered a whole set of entry barriers of entry. It's more populous, etc. And he said, "By golly, I never thought of that." And he sort of designated me a uh, and and a friend of mine, a guy named Craig Hatcock, the the advanced team research on applying disruptive innovation to non traditional domains like religion. Wow. And. Uh, so it, and you know, there's been a lot of other stories. I've, I've had tremendous opportunities in my career to meet amazing people and to be connected. See, like even this, in all honesty, this this conversation with you. So I, I meet you, and 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 we do this because somehow uh, I get connected to to Lockbox, and 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 that's by accident because someone else connects me, and and of course I, I look at Lockbox and I I say, oh. Well, and one of the interesting things, just another disruption. I say that's another disruption. Oh, financial exclusion is really a terrible thing. It's really bad in the world. And so look what happened. We can wait, I guess, for traditional legacy institutions like banks, et cetera, to, to fix this or traditional legacy institutions, you know, to, to fix the problem of exclusion. But it's inevitably, since money, by the way, like the currency of religion, is so central to being mm-hmm. able to flourish. Not surprisingly, someone emerges and disrupts the business so that you wind up being able to, you know, end financial exclusion. A big, a, that's, a, that's a redemptive vision, right? That's a religion vision. Anything that says, I'm going to end a major problem that we've had forever, that's a very big vision. But you do it day to day, wandering towards the promised land of ending financial exclusion. So I get these connections to people, and then I get to see, oh my, look where this stuff is playing out. Mm-hmm. Remember, Financial exclusion was taken care of by most local communities for most of human history, right? 
the local community made sure that people weren't excluded. The Dunbar rule was there weren't more than 150 people in most places in the world for most of human history. So most people couldn't be excluded the way they are excluded in abstract, bureaucratic, large systems as they are today, which is really a product of the industrial age and, and now kind of the modern, postmodern age. So if it's not being done by by church and, and synagogue, community plates and community uh, ga- uh, alms gather, alms like, you know, a uh, charity gathering. Mm-hmm. Well, not surprisingly, right, in a business-oriented, in a capitalist environment, not surprisingly, someone will emerge with an idea of, oh, let's use technology to actually do what we were always supposed to do is not exclude people financially. That's, now, that's how I look at stuff. Yeah, and I love it. And, you know, just, uh, and I suppose we experience it as, as disruptors. You know, I mean, I've worked for a couple of businesses now where we've disrupted the, the normal markets just to try and make things better for everyday life, exactly as you've just described it. Naturally, as part of that disruption, you know, you've, you've got to try and find the balance between conformity and disruption. Um, but then on top of that as well, you experience backlash, naturally, because you're, you're changing things. Have you, have you experienced much of that in your career? Yeah, I mean, backlash is a given. I don't care if it's backlash from... There's always backlash from the incumbent business. I don't care what the incumbent is. In in religion, we call the backlash accusations of heresy. We have different language for it, okay? We have dilution. You're diluting the tradition. You're, you're undermining the tradition. That's the language we use for um, the, the, the attacks incumbents have on anything. But remember... There was no such thing as a tradition without innovation, because all a tradition is, is an innovation that made it, right? So, and every innovator, I don't care who the innovator is in what sector, hopes that their innovation will scale to some extent. And a scaled innovation in religious language is what a tradition is. So the same dynamics happen in in every field. So of course I've had plenty of uh, resistance. But the other thing that I learned, and this I also learned from the innovators, uh, from, from the innovators dilemma, is that it's very important not to get, to get sucked into the fight with the resistance. The resistance is part of the drama, and maybe this comes from also a religious spiritual view, is that we need everybody, including the resistance. So I can learn from the resistance what I might what I might be overlooking without being caught in the drama of having all my energy sucked out by the resistance. Instead, keep my eyes on the prize of building the alternative. And if you build the alternative, and the alternative is always with low-hanging fruit, says disruptive innovation. It is always with the people who are not presently being served by the existing institutions, the legacy institutions, the incumbent businesses. If you serve, and I mean serve here, no different than who Lockbox is serving. It is an underserved population that is financially excluded. Well, it's the same thing in religion. Many, many people are excluded, whether they're excluded because the dogma is too rigid. They're excluded because they've married across some boundary. They've excluded because their, their sexual orientation is, is different. They're excluded because they no longer believe in the dogma and the creed. Right? They've been excluded. Well, that's the low-hanging fruit. 
of people who still want purpose and meaning in their life, who still want to have their moral imagination cultivated, who still want feelings of awe and wonder and radical amazement, who still want to become more generous and compassionate and loving, and who still and who still actually want a more just world. So the jobs are still there. The low-hanging fruit is the as has in disruptive innovation says, the non-consumers of the existing products and services. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. And it's a really interesting view as well. I mean, how do you, how do you retain intellectual independence, Owen? I mean, it's it's I. I the reason I ask this is because, you know, you, you're a deep thought leader. Um, you have some very strong views. Uh, and I really like the way your brain works personally on a, on a personal <laughs> level. I really do. I find you incredibly fascinating. So I'd just love to know how you're able to retain that intelligence from an independent it's, perspective. It's exactly, it's exactly the same, I'm sure, as any innovator that I, I've met in my sector. I'm very lucky. I have, I have a bunch of people that have that I've developed relationships over the years, who, they are my DC people, okay? Now, we don't call it venture capital in the religion sector the same way, right? What we call it is sort of impact philanthropy, or we call it, you know, we, we joke in, in, in with my people that I'm a highly speculative investment, you know, it, it, and, my, and the organization is a highly speculative investment because you're not going to see the impact of what I'm talking about right, for the next 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Because until the next generation, until the real inflection point comes, we're about, at least the economists suggest that about one third of all the religion sector in the United States will not be here in the next 36 to 48 months. So $1.2, trillion sector. So about $400 billion will disappear. That's seminaries that go under, that's churches that merge or go under. And Millennials and Generation Z, already more than 50% are not affiliated with institutional religion. I want to be clear. The non-affiliation with institutional religion right, is not the problem. The challenge is the jobs that religion historically were supposed to get done now need to get done in other sectors. And so this leaves open tremendous possibility that it's generational. We need new ideas. We need new R&D. We need, we need people who think about this stuff to be taken out of the religion sector and put in other sectors. Right? And my sense is within the next 20 years, we're already seeing it in, in Fortune 500 companies, whole new roles that didn't exist 20 years ago. Chief purpose officer, right? Chief meaning officer, which mm -hmm. right, PCW as a chief meaning officer, chief play officer, chief leisure officer, chief community officer, chief purpose officer. Chief Integrity Officer, which is different than the compliance part of a company, which is illegal. This Chief Integrity is something different. Chief Wellness Officers. Well, these are all new. These jobs, literally, and, and many of them are not in the HR department, not to criticize the HR department. They're in other parts, which we know are more powerful in a lot mm -hmm. of these institutions. And those are new roles. That's where it's like, now it's not yet. We wouldn't call those roles rabbis and ministers and pastors. We don't call it yet that. But the training for those roles is going to emerge to draw on wisdom traditions, going to draw on uh, the variety of, 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 of different faith communities unbundled. And that's a really important part. We're going to wind up on just like just like in media, we've unbundled. My kids don't have cable TV. My kids stream, right? Mm -hmm. So all well, the same thing. You're good. We're going to wind up disintermediating and unbundling most of these Western religions. So you're going to take a practice or a wisdom story 
right, from different traditions and use them as you need them to get real jobs done. You will not have to buy, I don't mean to be crass, but you will not have to buy the entire metaphysic. You won't have to buy the entire creed, the entire dogma. You'll be able to pick out a magnificent uh, Jesus story or a magnificent uh, Buddha story or a magnificent story about uh, Muhammad and his wife, or you'll be able to borrow a, 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 a taste or try a different food or try a different rich religious practice or a piece of a religious practice. And we're in the very, very beginning of unbundling. Look, you know, it took a long time to get to Netflix. It wasn't like, look, we had Netflix yes. and now look at Netflix. So we're going to add unbundling. We need people to do that. The schools will not get there. But another few, you know, the seminaries are beginning to close. That will force new seminaries to arise that will be uh, more cross-denominational, interdisciplinary, right? No, no different than the, the, the really great tech companies that hire artists and psychologists. They're not just hiring coders, right? They're hi- not just hiring engineers, right? They're hiring people from different sectors so that we can create new kinds of collective intelligence. I think mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. Right. I think many of us know that we've reached the limit of our conceptual, philosophical, ethical sort of systems, our governing systems, our health systems. They're all collapsing, not because anyone's bad, but because they've reached their limit. Yep. And the next round of, of and it's going to be bumpy, it's going to be really turbulent. The next round will, will only get to some next iterations in all these systems if we produce new ways of being together that produce new collective intelligence. And that's the hope of Web.3. Oh, that is the, that is, I mean, that's the hope of the next iterations of technology too. But that's even lockbox because if you think about it, if you have less financial exclusion, you have more people contributing to the collective intelligence of yep. the planet. So it's all, these things are all interconnected in a sort of wide-ranging meta-crisis, so to speak, a crisis of, how do we belong together? Because we can no longer simply belong tribally. The, cri- so the crisis of the we. There is a crisis of meaning. There is a crisis of attention. What we give our attention to is what happens. So we have to learn how to, to, to control our attention, an old spiritual uh, you know, challenge. There's a crisis of the climate. There's a crisis of capitalism or inequality. And all these crises are interrelated and all require new forms of collective intelligence and collective psychological and moral development. And when you talk about things like this, you know, obviously you're constantly challenging yourself and the way you think. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't be doing what you do today and just continue with one mindset. So I'd be really interested to know what you do for yourself to kind of develop your next stage of thinking and how yeah. who influences you and, you know, what kind of gives you that drive to help develop your thinking on? That's a great question. Well, first of all, for me, like number one, sort of, you know, my animating sort of internal energy is curiosity. So start there. I think, you know, that's probably a gift. I'm lucky. I was born with it. My mother was incredibly curious. I always tell the story that when we come home from school, my mother didn't care what we learned at all. She cared what questions we had. She would say, like, tell me a question about something that you learned today. She didn't care what we learned. She cared about the question. And, you know, when that happens at six years old and seven years old, eight years old, and just, you know, at that time, you just think your mother's kind of funny, <laughs> right? But it turns out that I'm always, like, interested in the questions in people. 
two, I really do love people. And I'm interested in people's stories. I'm interested in, and so I, I will go anywhere new. I, I, I'm, it's like, it's like even there. So I meet, I, you know, I get connected to, to, to you. And so I spent like a couple of hours like, wow, what is Lockbox really? What is it really? Cause I'm going to be, not that it's not, that this is about that, but if I'm going to, I got to learn. Well, when you learn, the more you learn, the more patterns get made. And meaning is just about pattern making. And I, I like the pattern making. I like to see how, I, I like, wow, what is the analogy, the lockbox in my, in my understanding of religion? If I create enough analogies, then what's the, what's the analogy of an Apple store to a church? And what's the analogy of uh, all of these new titles in, in, in Fortune 500 companies with what's happening in, in religion? And what about, we run a faith, we run a, uh, a program at Columbia Business School, our uh, organization, a collaboration with Columbia Business School on spiritual entrepreneurship. It was the first program in America, and now two other universities are starting, two other business schools are starting it. Spiritual entrepreneurship. We took faith rooted leaders who want to launch ventures using what they call the locked assets of their tradition. That is both their faith tradition, the social capital, the human capital, the financial capital. They're not interested in how many people come to their churches. They're interested in how they can unlock the assets of their churches to solve real problems in the world. Those problems can be literacy. The problems can be loneliness. The problems can be the, the pipeline between schools and prison. Um, it could be hunger. It could be trafficking. And we've 200 ventures have been founded. In 180 ventures have been founded in the last six years. of People who, rather than getting up in the morning, agonizing about the preservation of their institution. And I don't care what business you're in. If you get up in the morning and worry about the preservation of your institution, your institution's already dead. They worry about how their institution can serve in ever deeper and new ways real people to solve real problems. Now that shift is, has opened up doors. And so I'm, I'm meeting people all over and and then, of course, reading. You know, I probably read five, six books a week. You know, wow. Again, do I read every single page? No, I don't read every single page. But, you know, I'll read the introduction, first chapter and last chapter, but six books a week. And, and in different spaces, right? So it could be a science book. It could be, obviously, over the last five, seven years, it's been incredible amount of business and technology books. Because business, you know, today, this morning, I don't know if you know this kid, this morning, the most important um, poll on trust mm-hmm. in the world, it's called the Edelman Trust Barometer, came out this morning mm-hmm. uh, regarding um, tr- my trust in the society. And business came out the highest trusted institution and sector, right, in the country. Right. And, and by the way, that's not only the United States, I think that was also Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's remarkable, and the and second, not only trusted, right, at 64%, 64% of the people polled. And it's the law, it, this is like a, this is the largest study of trust that they come out like every six months. 64% of people polled trust business, the highest of all sectors, more than doctors and more than lawyers and more, of course, than government and more than religious leaders and more than military leaders and more than journalists. Wow. That's the trust. And then the, the study went deeper. I can send this to you mm. after so that you can see it. And then, then, and then it went ex, people's expectations of business. Expe- 
expectations of business domestically, expectations of business geopolitically, expectations of business in terms of purpose, in terms of justice. Now, I, I don't even know if that's good because maybe this is asking too much of business. So I, I don't even know, but I think it's surely fascinating that at the same time that we're watching some real challenges to capitalism in a sort of late capitalism age, business is trusted the way it is. And so, like, if you're a religious or spirit, faith-rooted leader or you care about how the society looks, if you're in the humanities at the university, or you need to take business really, really seriously. Almost like you needed to take religion seriously throughout the medieval period because the Catholic Church was really pretty powerful in Europe. If you didn't have the Catholic Church on your side, right, you were in big trouble. And, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, with that kind of power, obviously comes, as Spider-Man would say, immense responsibility. And that goes right back to what you were saying earlier as well about new roles developing within business as well. And, you know, there's a huge responsibility associated with that. And um, Owen, before I let you go, because um, I do know that you need to get on with the rest of your day, I do have one final <laughs> question. And I would love to know about your experience of meeting the Dalai Lama, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, one of the really blessed things that happened to me. So I, I wound up uh, being invited to uh, introduce the Dalai Lama in Feather Lakes, Colorado, there was a, a stupa, which is a, uh, a Buddhist sacred uh, like temple that was dedicated, built in, in Feather Lakes and by the Shambhala lineage in America. And um, I had been involved in that lineage and, and I was invited to introduce the Dalai Lama. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a really, you know, it's an intense thing to introduce to 5,000. Yeah, no pressure. Because in the end. <laughs> It's not a pressure in the end, you know, I'm just a rabbi and it is what it is. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't make more of it, but still that was pretty intense. Well, the, the perk that you get was you got to go in after this, after you, I introduced and gave a little bit of a sort of talk on compassionate leadership, introduced the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama spoke, then the Dalai Lama and his translator and me and, and two other people went into the stupa and I got to spend some, some time with the Dalai Lama. So here's the story. So of course, because I'm, you know, an upper New York, West Side Jewish, liberal, intellectual, I, you know, I'm very insecure relative to standing with the Dalai Lama. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get the, I'm going to work on the best question ever. And I'm going to like really show that I'm, the Dalai Lama is going to think I'm smart. That's my ego out of control. And we walk in there and, and um, the way you do is you, you sort of lean over and, and, and you, he puts a, a, a he puts like a white scarf on you. It's called a kata. It's a, a way of saying I recognize your presence. You recognize my presence. So, so he bows, he leans down, and I put one over his. Mm-hmm. I lean down. He puts one over. I look into his eyes, and I'm about to ask my question, and I completely forget everything. I look at him, and I'm a very I'm pretty psychologically aware. I'm a rational person. I do believe in sort of oneness, mystical experiences, but I'm not a touchy-feely guy. I forget everything. I go blank. Wow. And I, and I mean blank. And I look into his eyes, and I swear now, Katie, I have this one, two, three experience in a billionth of a second. I look in, and and I, like, I, as if it was a spiritual MRI, I could 
feel all the ickiness inside of me. I could feel my flaws, not know them. I could feel them. I could feel the stains. I could feel, you know, all the ickiness that's part of me. It was just like I could, and and, and I I felt this like ugh, I, uh, in a billionth of a second after that, I felt, oh, I'm perfect, exactly the way they am. And then the billionth of a second after that, you could do better. And it transformed my life. Ugh, perfect. You could do better. Amazing. And and I realized, oh, that's how life is. We're all a It's hard to be human. It's hard to do this trip and this this you know eighty ninety year trip if we're really lucky and and do it really really well. It's really hard if you do it fifty one forty nine. That's amazing if you can produce a business that can serve people if you can live a life that serves people oh my god that's amazing you know but we're also perfect just the way we are and we can always do better and then i remembered my question <laughs> that's the weird thing i said to the Dalai Lama, there's going to be a lot of loss i don't talk to my people about loss because i'm on the opportunity side but there's no possibility uh, that there won't be loss people's traditions are being lost people's uh, ways of having constructed their identity of being lost. It's really hard. People's jobs are being lost. It's really hard. And I speak about opportunity, but like, what do you do with people's loss? And of course, the Dalai Lama, having had to move from Tibet, having moved from India, et cetera, and China. So, you know, there's, he knows about that. He looks at me, goes to his, to his uh, translator. Get, he has a very high voice. Go get me a bowl, he says. Get me a bowl, and the the, the the translator comes back with the bowl. He turns to me, says, "What's the most important part of this bowl?" And I assumed that was rhetorical, so I didn't answer mm-hmm. to. And he goes, "The most important part of the bowl is the empty space. No empty space, no bowl. That's life, loss, gain, loss." Gain and he does like an infinite loop with his hand, right? Loss, gain. Wow. Loss, gain. And those two teachings that happen inside of three and a half minutes. Goodness. We're all a little iffy. We're all perfect. We could do better. And here's the dance of life. I don't care if it's, you can call it Schumpeter's creative destruction. You can call it whatever you want. There's loss and gain and loss and gain. And our job together is to wander around, choosing very carefully who we want to wander with, who will help us manage the loss and leverage the gain. Manage the loss and leverage the gain. And what a beautiful way of looking at life. You know, if only we all had the strength to actually be able to carry that through. Imagine, you know, how much richer our lives would be if we could, you know, think about the gains when you're going through the terrible losses and, you know, appreciate it uh, when you're at that high point. I mean, I mean, that's just mind blowing, mind blowing. And we need it. And we need each other to do it. In other words, I think that's, I really do believe the great companies of the future, right. will not only see, be the ones that serve people at high levels. Right. And we're really seeing that, you know, there's, even the ESG and that kind of stuff, which is the beginning of recognizing there are better companies and worse companies. Companies have wider understanding, call which shareholder to stakeholder. I, those words don't matter to me. But, but companies that take into account 
more perspectives on what they do. I think we're going to see that. And amongst those things is, is companies that are able to have the sort of psycho-spiritual, and if you don't like spiritual, the psychological literacy to manage this, manage this dance better. And that's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting next, it's always interesting to be human, but it's going to be very interesting next few decades as we manage incredible turbulence and incredible loss and unimaginable kinds of gains, literally unimaginable kinds of gains because of technology and, and because of communications, and because of science, and because we're meeting people and getting to hear people's stories in ways that are unprecedented in human history. Never before could we hear so many people's stories. Now, the problem with that is it's triggering. It's hard. It's hard when you hear a lot of stories, and, and it's hard to, to discern the signal from the noise in, in the stranger's story. But then that was sort of the initial religious command in every religious tradition, love the stranger. And I don't care. There's a lot of ways to love the stranger, right? You can love the stranger by saying, wow, somewhere in the world, someone is financially excluded. If you really love the stranger, and I don't know that person, and I'll never meet that person, right? But if one really loves the stranger, love isn't bullshitting around. If one really loves the stranger, one figures out how not to exclude. So it's going to happen in so many different spaces and places and sectors, and, and that makes it really exciting to wander together. It certainly does. And I have to say, this has been one of my favourite LockPod episodes ever. It's been mm-hmm. truly magnificent speaking to you, Owen. Thank you very much for your time today and for, for sharing some of your knowledge and thoughts with us. Thank you so much, and I love listening to you too.